Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. One Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gifts to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened up to me, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease amongst you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Archaea, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and labourer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, Fortunus, and Archaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Good afternoon, friends. It's great to see you in week 10. Thank you for continuing to join us at the Bible Talks week by week uh, as we wrap up our series on a community that loves. Uh, My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors, if we haven't met, and it is a delight to be able to look at this passage before us. Let's pray and ask for God's help even at the end of term. Our great God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us, that you speak words that are clear and life-giving and good. And Father, we pray that uh, even at this end of term time, that we would clearly hear your voice and so rightly respond to you. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. You probably realize that God has made us be deeply social beings. Uh, Sure, each of us have different appetites and capacities for that social interaction time, but we all long for it. We all long for connection. And when we're cut off from others for too long, as our periods of COVID isolation showed us, we really feel that isolation. We really feel being cut off. But you probably also realize that not all relationships are the same. Not all relationships are equal. Generally speaking, we grow in relationship with others as we spend more time with them, as we share more with them. But it's not just about those kinds of natural connections. I was reflecting about this over the weekend. We had some neighbors over. Now I know my neighbors quite well. They know me quite well. Hey, lots of different 
ways. You know, they know when we're playing in the backyard, they can hear my kids. They know what sports they've been playing is what balls fly over the fence. Sadly, they probably know when our kids are practicing their music and just how well that is going. Uh, we kind of know when they arrive back late at night or they know when we arrive back at night. If you've come over to our place and hung out in the backyard, they know you've been there. They've heard you too. Uh, there's all this kind of stuff that we know about one another. We share a location. Uh, and we incidentally share life as well as just talking about life together. And so we have a, a relationship. But I also have relatives over in South Africa. And my relationship with them looks kind of different. Uh, they're family. We've got this kind of like deep and personal bond together. But at the same time, they've never met my kids. They've seen pictures, but we haven't been over in the last 10 years and they haven't made it here. And so you've got this interesting thing that I have a, a stronger and a deeper bond and connection with my family in South Africa, though we don't share much life together. But then there's my neighbours, they get to see lots of our life. We don't have that same kind of bond. Relationships are a bit like that. There's lots of different things that bring us together. A shared interest, maybe a common love for tennis or Taylor Swift or whatever else, might bring you into a stadium with lots of other people who share that love. Maybe through your studies you've been encouraged to join the profession or the society that goes with your degree. The engineers, the doctors or whatever else it may be. In social media we kind of gather in different tribes, different interest groups. Though it's interesting, we have more connections and friends than ever before, but we can still feel the isolation and the loneliness. That's for another day, the, the world of social media. Uh, but in all these different ways, we want to belong. We want connection. We want to be part of something that's bigger than us. And while not all of these are equal, they all have value. They all impact us. But I want to suggest that right at the very top of that list is the connection that comes from being a Christian. The connection that we have with God and the connection that we have with God's people. And really, that's what chapter 16 is all about. It's unpacking the, the richness and the glory of belonging to something bigger as being part of a gospel community. Because in a sense, it's the gospel that's created these connections. Now, if you were here last week, we were reminded back in chapter 15, you might need to flip back a page in your Bible, that the church is built on the unchanging truth of the gospel. In chapter 15 and verse 3, there's a little summary of this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to a whole bunch of faithful witnesses. Now, this is kind of the message that has been underlying the whole letter. If you remember back to the start of the year, or back to the start of the letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, in these opening chapters, really defends his ministry that's proclaiming the crucified Christ that appears foolish to those around him. So Christ didn't send Paul to, be, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. This was kind of his opening argument. We preach a foolish message, at least in the world's eyes, because these words about the Christ who was crucified express God's power. They're the most powerful words we can speak. They can bring people from death to life for all eternity. Then last week we came to chapter 15, and kind of at the, as the other bookend of the book, we're talking about something else that seems absurd that is profoundly significant. 
the fact that this Christ has been raised bodily to life again. But, uh, as we read, uh, I haven't gave you this one on the slide, isn't that nice? Uh, what is the significance of the resurrection? Uh, if Christ has not been raised, well, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, Christian community is built upon these two foundational truths. The folly of Christ crucified, which is the power of salvation because it provides forgiveness of sins. And the glory of Christ resurrected. He is the one who reigns for all eternity. And we can be part of that by faith in Him. And if you trust these truths, if you build your life on these truths, then you're brought into some profound relationship. Firstly, and most profoundly, trusting that Jesus is the Christ brings us into a relationship with God through our unity with Jesus Christ. Uh, so back in chapter 1 and verse 30, because of God, you, these Corinthian Christians, and all Christians, are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The profound truth is that we trust in Jesus and we're united to Him, one with God the Son, all judgment taken from us. His death was our death. And His resurrection gives us life and peace with God. But this personal relationship with God isn't just a, a, a me and God kind of thing. We're brought into a profound corporate reality. And so a couple of weeks ago, we saw in chapter 12, that you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The Corinthian church, in all their different members, is the one body of Christ. And so there's a unity as well as an individuality in the body of Christ amongst God's people. We are bound up in something bigger than just ourselves. And that's part of the richness of Christian community. But it doesn't stop just with those who gather physically on a Wednesday lunchtime or on a Sunday evening or, or whenever else. Because as Paul greeted the Corinthian Christians back in chapter 1 and verse 2, he told them that they were actually part of a, a bigger reality still. So, he writes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You see, there's the reality of who they are. They are the church of God that is in Corinth. That's the people gathered in that place at that time. But they're also connected to this other group of saints, those who've been declared holy, made holy by the blood of Jesus in every place. Wherever they are in the world, those who call on the name of the Jesus have this shared reality, this shared participation. You see, in Christ, we're part of something much bigger. And the connection I have with my family in South Africa, in a sense, it's a, a pale reflection of this kind of Christian unity. There's something profound that connects us to them, even if you've never met them before. Even if I've never met them, even if they haven't met my kids, they're connected to these people in South Africa. And in Christ Jesus, we are profoundly connected with God and with all who are in Christ. Now, that's expressed as we gather together with a group of people at a group in time, but also with all believers everywhere. We serve the same Lord. We are siblings in the same family. We have the same perspective and purpose in life. We share in eternal life. And this has beautiful implications for how we support one another and how we live together as a community that loves. 
But before we unpack what that love looks like, can I just say, if you've been with us this term at the Bible Talks, or maybe this is your first time, and you're here checking out who Jesus is, we're going to show you a picture of the beautiful community, but I want to invite you to be part of that community. We hope if you've been with us a bit that you've experienced the love, like a, a guest joining a family. There's a richness to that. There's a joy, and we hope you've appreciated that and felt that. But we'd like to invite you, and I'm going to extend the invitation to you now, to be part of that family, adopted into that family. Because if you think the hospitality is nice as a guest, it's so much better as a son or a daughter. It's the rich blessing of forgiveness, of peace with God, of belonging, not just for a time, but for all eternity. Forgiven, washed clean, reconciled to God. The way that you become part of the family is you express that trust that who Jesus is, is the Savior who died for your sins and the Christ who's risen as Lord of all. And we do that with words. That's what prayer is about. So at the end of the talk, I'm going to pray a prayer that is for all of us. If you'd like to become a follower of the Lord Jesus, it's a great prayer for you. And if you follow Jesus for as long as you know, it's a great prayer to express that trust. But I wanted to flag up front, at the end of term, I'd love you to join the family today to well, experience the rich blessing of this gospel community. What does it look like to be a community that loves? Well, part of the call of chapter 16, I think, is to raise our eyes beyond ourselves. Because we are united with Christians everywhere, but if you're human, you probably know that it's pretty easy to keep on looking in on yourselves. Sin is kind of like this gravitational pull within us that keeps on dragging our eyes closer and closer to ourselves. So I take it, even if you know that you're part of this global Christian community, and most of you probably think of what God's doing maybe in our nation, or maybe just in our city, maybe just in your suburb or your church, maybe just your own life. Whereas when we put our trust in Jesus, it's kind of like that gravitational center moves from us to the Lord Jesus and to what He's doing. And so in the gospel, it raises our eyes to see not just our own lives, and our own cities and our own churches, but what God's doing in all the world and to see the part we have to play in that. And that's really the reminder that Paul has for us through this last chapter of 1 Corinthians. So at point three, a gospel community is a community that loves practically. Now, unfortunately, when we talk about practical help, I think we can often think physical needs rather than spiritual needs. But I don't think it's actually a right conclusion or assumption, or if it's anyway fair that having food and shelter is more significant than having peace with God and life forever. Both are good and we should seek both, but both are not equal. You know this if you've done any first aid, if you come across someone lying unconscious on the ground, your first thought isn't, let me get you a glass of water and a blanket. You go and check their vital signs. Are they breathing? Do they have a pulse? And if they don't, those are the things you need to address first. It's the same with the gospel. Meeting physical needs while they're spiritually dead doesn't help them eternally. Now, that's not to say that you should never offer someone a glass of water or seek to meet their physical needs without preaching the gospel to them first. But we can be tempted to just do the physical, to prioritize the physical, and to neglect the spiritual. Why is that? Well, I take it, it's easier and brings greater praise when we provide for physical needs rather than spiritual needs. Governments get behind you, there's all kind of backing. There's general support if you want to do good for the poor and the marginalized and the afflicted. Everyone's going to celebrate that. But if you want to preach the gospel to someone, if you want to tell them that they're out of relationship with God, 
that they actually need forgiveness. Not everyone's going to welcome that. Not everyone's going to support you in that. There'll be opposition. There might be hatred. There might be mockery. You might be cancelled. And even the people that you go to serve may not welcome it. We need to keep on remembering that practical love is spiritual and physical. We provide both, but don't neglect the spiritual just because the physical is easier and more celebrated. So what does it look like for the Corinthian Christians to love practically, to meet these physical and spiritual needs? Well, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Here's a chance to say hi to those around you. Skim back through the passage, run your eyes down. What are some of the ways that the Corinthians can show this practical love in meeting physical and spiritual needs? We can have 40 seconds, it's week 10, we're feeling generous. All right, friends, let's come back together. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts, there's lots in the passage. Uh, who wants to share some of the different things you saw? What are some of the different ways that the Corinthian Christians can practically love others? What do you see? Very practical at the time. Put aside something of what they earn to give to others. What else did you see? Yeah, so they'd recognize Stephanus and others like him, maybe his household as well, who's doing this work of teaching, serving others. Thank you. Um, greeting others. Greeting others. Yeah, so at the end there's these greetings, uh, you know, from others to this church. Other things? They can welcome Paul down in verse I think, 10 or 11. They can welcome Timothy as well. So there's this kind of hospitality. Uh, and I know you're all thinking, but there's the holy kiss down the end, but we'll come to that <laughs> later on. Uh, there's a whole bunch of these different expressions of practical love. Uh, let's unpack them a little bit together. In those first few verses, as you know, it was helpfully pointed out for us, they're told that they can practically support others by putting aside some of their money. Now, we aren't told a whole lot about it here, but we do see some more details in Romans 15 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Basically, it seems that the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are struggling, and this is a practical way that some of the other believers can support them. There's not much justification, but it's practical advice. Verse 2, on the first day of each week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that he, there will be no collecting when I come. And notice how it's practical and flexible. Just a little bit each week. And you put that money aside based on how the Lord has caused you to prosper that week. You've prospered greatly, put more aside that week. It's been a tough week, maybe only a little bit. But week by week, storing up as the Lord has provided to care for other believers. Now I take it this is in addition to the regular support that they give to those who preach and teach amongst them regularly. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9 said that the workers who labor in the gospel over them are to be supported by the church. So this is kind of an extra act of giving. It's an extra act of generosity to provide practically for the needs of God's people elsewhere. Uh, now I take it, some of us are still working out what it looks like to be regular in supporting those who preach and teach at our churches as well as on campus. But can I encourage you to consider as the Lord provides for you, how can you continue to be generous to f meet the, the practical needs of others 
particularly those who are struggling through poverty or you know, other affliction in the church around the world. What does it look like? The world's a big place. Uh, personally, as a family, we've found the work of Anglican Aid to be helpful. Uh, they're a Christian organization kind of based in Sydney that seeks to support Christians who are suffering around the world. They've got development projects, they do disaster relief, and so we give money regularly to Anglican Aid, and they manage some of that work for us of trying to work out where it's most needed. So you can consider that. Uh, another thing we found helpful is an organization like Compassion. They seek to support Christian kids in particular who are struggling around the world. So we sponsor some kids in Rwanda, and that's a nice way of continuing to, I guess, provide practical help to some personal people that we'd love to see uh, looked after in the gospel as part of God's broader family. There's lots of other ways you can do it. There's a couple of concrete examples of what it might look like to show this practical care to God's people elsewhere. But this practical love isn't just about physical needs. There's also this focus on the ministry of the gospel. And so, as was pointed out in verse 6, Paul's plan to visit them. And the reason why he's coming is so that they may help him on his journey wherever he goes. Now, Paul's not trying to line up some free accommodation or to borrow the family car for some Greek sightseeing. This is a call for gospel partnership. This is an invitation that they would come and help him practically in whatever way is necessary for the gospel to keep on going forward. And it's the same in verse 11 with Timothy. Timothy is doing that same gospel work as Paul is, and they're to welcome him and help him on his way that the gospel can keep on going. This is providing for gospel workers. But we also see some of the challenges that those who seek to provide spiritual help face. For a start in verse 9, Paul's delayed his plans to travel to Corinth because he says, a wide door for effective workers open to me and there are many adversaries. You see, great gospel work, fruitful and effective Christian ministry, and a whole lot of opposition. Now, we'd love to have one without the other, a fruitful proclamation without that painful persecution. But in God's economy, I don't think we can ever expect that to be so. Where God works powerfully through His Word and His Spirit, transforming lives and cultures, is exactly where you expect to find the most opposition. People resistant, people not liking the changes. People like Alexander the coppersmith who caused Paul great harm in Ephesus because his silver idol-making trade was affected by the gospel going out. So friends, as we seek to boldly proclaim, I take it we should expect some bold opposition. That's not cause to stop. That doesn't show that we've done something wrong. Just a reminder, we need to be courageous. We need to keep on persevering in the work of proclaiming the gospel. Because God, I take it, continues to work richly through the gospel being proclaimed, even in the face of great opposition. And sadly, that opposition isn't just from outside the church. You see, in verse 10, Paul talks about Timothy coming to visit them. Now, some context for this comes back in chapter 4. Uh, Paul's just been admonishing the Corinthian Christians for how they've been behaving. And he says, I'm going to send Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. That they would learn to follow Paul as Timothy comes because they're not currently doing it. And these are the ways that all Christians are to live, as Paul teaches in every church. Now, seeing that Timothy's arrival is probably imminent, Paul reminds them that he is coming. And he says that he, he wants them to welcome him. And I think literally in verse 10, 
In the NIV translation, to be clear, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear. Why would Timothy be afraid when he comes to them? Uh, verse 11, uh, he continues, no one then should treat him with contempt, or the ESV has despised him. Why would they despise him? Well, I take it, Paul's only too aware of the nature of the letter he's just written. There's conflict, there's tension, there's disagreement between them. And his concern is that when Timothy goes in his name to remind them of how he's lived, that they're going to give Timothy a hard time. That Timothy will suffer, that he'll be afraid, that he'll be treated with contempt, that he'll be despised because he's doing the work of the Lord. Even God's people can hurt God's servants as they do this spiritual labor. Now, that shouldn't be the case, but in the reality, it is. And so, what does it look like for us to engage in this kind of spiritual partnering? Uh, one of the ways that we seek to do it is by supporting missionaries with organizations like the Church Missionary Society. They are those who have, I guess, gone out from us to take the gospel to parts of the world where it is less well understood or where people need to hear it. And every few years, a missionary will come home back to reconnect with supporters. And if you're someone who regularly supports, an email will go out and say, hey, has anyone got a spare car? Maybe a bike that someone can borrow, toys for the kids. There are some practical ways to care for them while they're here. But that care doesn't stop when they leave. Uh, one of the joys of our modern age is it's pretty easy to send money across the world to keep on enabling global mission to continue. And so if you aren't already, can I encourage you uh, to sign up to support a missionary in an ongoing and practical way. Each of our faculties and our churches have missionary partners that we support regularly. That could be a great place to sign. Grab your Bible study letter, ask who would be a good person to pray for and to commit to. We want to practically partner in seeing the gospel go out. But it's not just the, the partnership that we do to others. I take it many of you are going to receive and be blessed by this kind of partnership in the next little while. Uh, if you're going to NTE, a bunch of us are then carrying on to NTE mission. It's about 150 of us heading out to local churches to continue to proclaim the gospel in different contexts. And when you do, we're going to be welcomed into people's homes. People you've never met before will open up their home, open up their fridge, share their Wi-Fi password with you, all for enabling the gospel to keep on going out in their context. They're welcoming you like the Corinthians were to welcome Paul and Timothy, so that you can keep on preaching the gospel in that context. I hope being billeted by these families is a rich blessing to you. And I hope it's a blessing you can extend to others, maybe down the track, as other Christians come through and join you for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. Then we've also got the example of Stephanus, down in verses 15 and 16. Not only are we told he was the first person in, in Achaia to trust in Jesus, but he's committed his life and his whole family's life, his whole household, probably the servants as well that lived amongst him, to serving the Lord, being devoted to God's people. They've been practically loving the people in Corinth and beyond, even being a blessing to people like Paul. And the encouragement, as we saw before, is that they should be honored. They should be respected. You should listen to people like this. And for us, I wonder if those people like our Bible study leaders, our pastors, those who commit their lives to serving us should be honored and obeyed. You see, through the gospel, Christian communities love practically. We provide for physical needs to care for God's people and for the spiritual needs of God's people and the world to continue to be met. But did you notice that this love isn't just broad and global? 
It's also deeply personal. So we're at point four. Each individual has a part to play in this love. And there's this real personal affection and connection. In verse two, it's not kind of some corporate entity of the church storing up a general offering, but every individual is to do this. It's a personal act of generosity. Week by week, as they're provided for by the Lord, they put some money aside. In verse 7, Paul really wants to spend time with them. There seems to be a real affection and desire. Now, you may think he's just got a lot that he wants to teach them. That itself is an expression of love. But if you look down in verse 24, I think this is the most affectionate kind of signing off in any of Paul's letters. As his last words, Paul says, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Now, this isn't just Paul's duty or day job. He's deeply invested in them. He loves them and cares for them. And I take it because this love is in Christ Jesus. It's not just an apostolic love. All God's people can share this love for one another as we are united in Christ Jesus. In verse 12, Apollos gets a mention. Now, he had previously ministered to the Corinthians. If you remember back in chapter 1, there was this division, some saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. He clearly had an influential ministry amongst them. They loved him and they wanted him to come back. And Paul's willing to send him back. But it's interesting, serving people for the sake of their spiritual needs isn't just doing what they desire. And so Apollos has disappointed them here. He's not willing to come at the moment, even though he's had a, a deep and a personal ministry to them. We're not told why, but sometimes he will let people down as you seek to serve the Lord. At other times, there's this personal love and encouragement. It's going to be incredibly refreshing and encouraging. And that's what Stephanus has done. In verses 17 and 18, he's come and he's refreshed Paul's spirit as Stephanus has also been a refreshment to the Corinthians, as well as yours. In verses 19 and 20, as we saw, there's these greetings, the churches in Asia, uh, they're writing to greet their brothers and sisters. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, they say this hearty hi, if you like. And there's this real affection. Uh, they were people that Paul had met before in Corinth. Now they've moved on to Ephesus, and now they're hosting a church in their home, and they love those back in Corinth, and they want to send on their greetings. In fact, all the Lord's people want to greet one another. There's this desire and affection to show love personally. And not just amongst those scattered Christians. Down in verse 20, when Christians gather together, it's expressed as they greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, here's a chance for you to have another chat together. Should we likewise greet one another with a holy kiss? Now, this is a discussion question, not a practical exercise. Don't touch each other. Talk about the question. Love to hear your feedback. I'm glad discussion questions give you a chance to be real as well as to discuss the Bible together, but you know, hope you enjoyed the selfies. Uh, thoughts? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Should we do this? There's giggles, but we've got an answer. Uh, I, with, with other Arabs, that's a common greeting, and so we kiss each other on the cheek three times. And so... That's just a normal greeting. When with, so this is not necessarily not, holy, this is an Arab greeting? Well, Kiss each other three times? Arabs are separate from everyone else. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Other thoughts? <laughs> we should have a vote. Hands up if you think yes and no. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, we understand that it is a cultural practice still expressed by some cultures today. Not particularly Christian, 
but cultural. So in parts of Europe and the Arab world, it's a general greeting of affection, uh, of, uh, of friendliness. And so, it, to an extent, there's a goodness in this expressing that. But in our culture, I wouldn't really express that. If as you came into TBT, you were greeted with a kiss, you may not have felt as welcomed or as loved or as included as you might like. And so, there's an appropriate expression of the affection that God's people are to show to one another. It's not just cultural. I take it as something particularly that they were showing to each other. But in our culture, it's probably not the right symbol to show that same affection. And so, probably don't go for the kiss next time you're on the welcoming team. But do work out how you can love and show that affection and care for your Christian brothers and sisters. Now, it's probably not necessary, but probably also worth saying, this isn't an excuse to show Christ-like affection to that person who you find particularly attractive in church. This is an individual expression of love that is shown to all of God's people. And so if you find that you want to show this affection to some more than others, you probably need to check your heart and work out how you love all of God's people in this way. Because this is an expression of our unity in Christ, our belonging to the body, no more than that. And so what does it look like to love God's people in this kind of way? Well, I take it it's going to be valuing and caring for each member of God's family as someone who is necessary and precious. We saw that a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 12. They have a valuable role to play in building up God's body. You want to hear what they've got to say. You want to give them an opportunity to express the way that God has equipped them to serve His people. You're wanting to encourage them and speak to them yourself. It might involve trying to get to know them, to know their names, to know what's going on in their life, to, to pray for them, uh, to seek to speak God's words to them, uh, to seek to spur them on in their Christian life and service. Now, some of that will happen as you are gathered kind of more formally, but a lot of it's going to have to happen outside of the kind of main church meeting. Maybe you turn up early to welcome and to get to know and to care for people in this way. And maybe it happens after church as you stick around to keep on talking with them and encouraging them. Maybe it happens through the week as you get in touch with a message, as you catch up to disciple one another. What might it look like for you to serve God's people if you had the active thought that you are intentionally seeking to love them, to care for them, to value them, to build it up? Wouldn't it be wonderful to belong to a community where everyone thought that about you and everyone else? Thinking beyond our church gatherings, I wonder if uh, seeking to personally love those further afield is expressed in not just kind of partnering with people, but seeking to personally partner with them. Uh, as you commit to praying for and supporting a missionary, how do you actually respond to their prayer letters? It might be a quick one line, but maybe you share a bit of news occasionally. How can they get to know you as you seek to partner with them? Maybe it's a photo of your Bible study group. Maybe it's a photo of your family or your church. What does it look like to personally communicate with them? And now I know that personally, I go through waves of having good habits of this and bad habits of this. And I take it that will be true for most of us. But just because it's hard, don't give up. Keep on persevering in this personal love. Uh, as a family, uh, one of the ways we try and do this is we've got a map on our wall at home with a bunch of different pictures that you can vaguely see uh, of people that we want to intentionally keep praying for and partnering with. Each morning, we just pray for one of them. We move around. Uh, when we're going better, we'll send them a quick little message or email to say that we're praying for them. But that's dropped off at this present season. Uh, work out what it is for you. What are you going to do to keep on personally seeking to encourage and love and serve others? Because we're going to need to keep persevering at it. Which brings us to point five. We persevere in love because it's not just a passing feeling. It's not just a passing sentiment or experience. 
No, Christians love based on the unchanging gospel love that we've received in Christ. And because the gospel doesn't change, neither should our love. But why, why might we be tempted to waver from showing this love? Last time the Bible talks to have a discussion question, what do you reckon? Why might we be tempted to waver in our Christian love? 20 seconds for this one. It's getting shorter. All right, friends, let's come back together. Why? Because it's hard. Because there's opposition. Because it's costly. Because you keep on giving without seeing the fruit. Because it doesn't seem appreciated. Because it's not reciprocated. Because sin draws us in on ourselves. We could go on and on and on. Love is hard, which I take it is why Paul exhorts them strongly, and us too, to keep on loving, to keep on persevering. In the midst of all these personal greetings, I'm not sure if you noticed verses 13 and 14. They kind of stand out a bit. Paul gives them a last exhortation, or maybe a second last. Paul writes, be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. You see, there's a need to be alert because people will oppose and try and distract and lead us astray, both from within and from without. So pay attention to what you hear. Keep on weighing it against the truth that's revealed in the Scriptures. Know what God says. Be alert and keep on trusting, standing firm in that truth, standing firm in the faith. And this is going to require courage. That's what it means to act like men. Now, in our day and age, we're pretty sensitive to any kind of gendered descriptions or difference. Uh, this isn't a time to debate whether women can be more courageous than men. I know they can be. But the general exhortation is to be courageous. Whether man or woman, this applies to us. And you need to be courageous to stand firm in the faith because, well, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be mockery. There's going to be ridicule. There's going to be consequences. You might end up in jail. You might end up cancelled. You might lose friends. You might lose family. But they aren't reasons to stop believing or to deviate from the truth or to cease to love. Their call is to keep on standing firm with courage because there's nowhere else to go. And you're also going to need strength alongside that courage, not just to go it alone, but to go it together, to keep on persevering. Unless that means that we think we're going to have a whole bunch of hard and emotionless people who are full of courage and strength and nothing else, the last command in verse 14 is the kind of blanket that covers this all. Let all that you do be done in love. These are expressions of love. This is to call to persevere in love, to stand firm, to be steadfast, to be courageous, to be alert and aware, because this is the Christian life built on the love of Christ, standing firm in the truth of Christ. We observe Paul's final words to the church are an expression of his own deep love for them down in verse 24. But just before this, he talks with real strength about another love. Look down there at verse 22. As Paul writes this final greeting in his own hand, he says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. Now, they are strong words, but they are a reminder of the basic gospel reality. Love for the Lord, as we saw a few weeks ago, is an expression of Christian faith of having a relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Without love, there is no life, only judgment. Love for God must be our, our first and our foundational love that we persevere in. And that love then overflows to love the truth, to love God's people, to love the world in ways that are practical, in ways that are personal, 
in ways that are persevering. Now, we've touched on so many different ways that this love could be expressed. I don't expect that you can take it all away and change everything at once, and probably you don't need to change all these things. But can I encourage you just to think about what's one aspect that you've been challenged by today, where you might be able to grow in the way that you love God and His people, uh, in our context and beyond, as a way to keep on being this community that is shaped by the gospel and loves boldly and practically. Uh, For now, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And as I said earlier on, uh, this is a prayer that thanks God for His love towards us and expresses our commitment to respond to Him in love. Uh, This is a prayer that if you're a Christian, I hope it is your prayer. It's a great way that we can express that trust in God. And if you'd like to put your trust in Jesus and be part of His family today, it's a prayer that you can pray to. You say amen at the end as your expression that these words are words that you echo with your own heart and I'd love you to join me in with it. Join with me in saying so I'm going to pray and you can pray along with me in your heart. Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible love, sending Jesus to die for our sins and raising him as the triumphant Christ. We're sorry for failing to love you and to love others as we should. Please forgive us through Jesus' death in our place. By the power of your Spirit, help us to love you and your people and all the world with courage and strength and perseverance. We ask this for all the days that you give us until your Son returns or you call us home. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.